I didn't even have a chance to confirm placement of the NG tube before liquid stool started shooting out of the end of the tube. We quickly hooked up to suction within a minute filled the first canister. So we set up a second canister and a third. We pulled off three liters of liquid poop from his gut before the ICU attending even arrived to assess the patient. Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This is a crazy story about a poop emergency that you want to hear, but I have a favor to ask first. If you have found my podcast helpful, could you just take a moment to write a review of my podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you're currently listening to me on? I just want more nurses who want to learn and grow to be able to find my podcast. And the more reviews I have, the more the algorithm will bring my podcast to the top of their search. Just takes a minute. You could even do it right now while you're listening to this episode. Unless, of course, you're driving, then please don't write a review right now. But it would mean so much to me to see what you like about the podcast and how it has been helpful. It would help me out, and you would be helping other nurses find the Rapid Response RN podcast as well. So thanks in advance. I really appreciate it. Now, on to the story. So I arrive at the patient's room. He's a 70-ish-year-old male who does not look good. He's pale, diaphoretic, eyes closed. He's on the progressive care unit, so I just glanced up at the monitor while the nurse is telling me the story. His heart rate's in the 120s, AFib RVR. Blood pressure, 80s over 40s. His oxygen saturation is 96%. And he's breathing pretty fast, like 30 plus breaths a minute. The nurse tells me that he's been in the hospital for a few weeks after vascular surgery and has developed an ileus. He hasn't pooped in days. She feels like his abdomen has grown in size, even on her shift. She reached out to the doctor who ordered an NG tube. The patient will not let her put it in though. So I go to assess his belly and it is huge and taut. He looks nine months pregnant. So I asked her to get the NG tube supplies and I go to try to convince the patient of how important the NG tube is. Just as I'm starting my, you need this NG tube spiel, the resident arrives from the ICU. So I pause to tell him the story. He's like not hearing me and gets really locked in on the fact that the patient is tachycardic and says, we need the crash cart. We need a cardiovert. I'm like, cardiovert? The heart rate's only 120. He says, yes, we need a cardiovert. He is unstable. His blood pressure is less than 90 systolic and he's lethargic and he's an AFib RVR. To which I said, He's always in AFib. This is nothing new. The tachycardia is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Look at his belly. I, I need to get an NG tube in. He insists that this patient needs cardioversion. So though the patient had his eyes closed and does not seem to be paying attention, the family is right there. And I'm not going to argue with him in front of them. So I say, can I ask you something? And I pulled him to the hallway. I kindly say, I hear that you want to cardiovert, but I need you to call your attending to confirm that is the best course of action at this time. I've been a nurse for many years and I have never emergently cardioverted a patient with a rate of 120, nor do I feel comfortable cardioverting a chronic afibber, not knowing if he is fully anticoagulated. 
which he probably isn't since he's post-surgical. It doesn't seem safe to me to jump straight to cardioversion. So while you're contacting your attending, I'm gonna go place the NG tube and try to fix what I see to be the problem. If the NG tube doesn't help and your attending really wants to cardiovert, then I'd like him to come to the bedside and evaluate the patient in person before I go delivering electricity to this patient who has a high potential for a blood clot to be hanging out in his atrium. He said, okay, and starts calling his attending. So I head back to the room and again, try to convince the patient that he really does need this NG tube. Okay, so let's call this patient James. That was not his name though. James, I'm really concerned about how big your belly has grown. It looks so uncomfortable and I can see that it's making it hard for you to breathe. And now it's even affecting your blood pressure and heart rate. We really need to release some of that pressure in your abdomen. I'm very worried you will continue to get sicker if I don't put this tube in. I know it's gonna be uncomfortable for a minute while I place it, but I'm very good at putting these in quickly and with as little discomfort as possible. And if you work with me, it'll be so fast and then you'll actually get some relief. His wife had gotten up from her chair at this point and she too was trying to convince him. He's pretty lethargic, but he nods his head and says, okay. So I sat him up. I had the primary nurse hold a cup of water with a straw. And once I got to the back of the throat, I had him swallow, 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 swallow to get that tube down as fast as possible. I didn't even have a chance to confirm placement of the NG tube before liquid stool started shooting out of the end of the tube. We quickly hooked up to suction and within a minute filled the first canister. So we set up a second canister and a third. We pulled off three liters of liquid poop from his gut before the attending from the ICU even arrived to assess the patient. By that time, his heart rate was down to 105 and his blood pressure had corrected to 100 over 60. His abdomen was still a little distended, but it was softer now, and he looked more like four or five months pregnant instead of nine months pregnant. He still did not look like the picture of health, but he was definitely improved from when I first met him. We, as you probably guessed, did not cardiovert the patient since he said he felt much better and his vital signs confirmed that. But we did keep the NG tube in for continued gastric decompression. So let's break this case down a little. For starters, this patient obviously had more than just a little constipation. He had a complete obstruction of poop that was supposed to be heading south and was backing up in the northern regions of the GI system. Constipation is common after surgery with high doses of narcotics that will slow bowel motility and cause decreased stool or hardened stool to pass. Obstipation yes, I said obstipation, is when there's complete constipation and nothing is passing, not even gas. An ileus is when gut motility is slowed to the point that nothing is moving south, but it is slowed or stopped due to hypomotility. Patients can also develop small bowel obstructions from a mechanical obstruction like a mass, hernia, or scar tissue that is physically obstructing the flow south, both of which ileus and small bowel obstruction are common post-surgical complications. And in both cases, the poop pipes start to back up, but the treatment is a little different. So let's start by talking about ileuses. I think that's the plural for ileus. <laughs> okay. To further clarify, nothing is actually obstructing with an ileus, but things can become slowed to a complete stop from hypomotility or slowed peristalsis. Think of really bad interstate traffic. So your car is traveling south on the interstate 
and it just gets slower and slower to the point that you're just stuck there, basically parked, not moving. Come to find out, there's Mazer construction up ahead, and the construction crew is holding up slow down signs. So your car's the poop, the interstate is your intestine, and the crew with the slow down signs, that's the narcotics. So anesthesia and narcotics can slow the gut down so much that the poop just stops moving through. Other causes are medications with anticholinergic properties like antipsychotics, antihistamines, muscle relaxants, Parkinson's meds. Also meds like calcium channel blockers, clonidine, alpha adrenergic meds can also slow peristalsis. Conditions like hypothyroidism and electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypomagnesemia, all of these put your patient at a higher risk for an ileus. But remember, there's no anatomic obstruction. Things just aren't moving because the normal movement of the gut, called peristalsis, is very slow. The best treatment for an ileus is prevention. Early mobility, appropriate hydration, limit narcotic use, and maintain electrolyte balance. All of those are very important to prevent the ileus. But if we're past prevention and we have an actual diagnosed ileus on our hands, here are your treatment options. Enteral naloxone, also known as Narcan. So not IV push like you're used to giving it. You give this one through the NG tube. This minimizes the systemic effect of reversing the analgesic action of the narcotic in the system, but allows for the benefit of increasing peristalsis. It comes in an enteral formulation, but the IV form can also be given enterally through the gut. The dose is crazy high, like four to eight milligrams. So please ensure that you don't give a dose that high in the IV. That would induce instant severe pain for your patient and withdrawal symptoms. And you just don't want to inflict that on anybody. The most severe form of the ileus is called Ogilvie syndrome. Ogilvie syndrome. <laughs> this is when the gut is so dilated and distended that it can and will rupture if not treated. The abdomen is distended and very painful. With imaging, it's easy to see colonic dilation with gas. Go ahead and Google it. Just so you know, air is black on x-rays and CAT scans, and it's normal to have a couple little farts moving through the gut. The black area is seen on the x-ray. But an x-ray of colonic pseudo-obstruction, also known as Ogilvie syndrome, there are huge tubes of air. Like, it looks crazy. I think even someone not trained in reading radiological images could spot the problem. Pharmacological treatment is first line. Unless the cecum is dilated to greater than 12 centimeters, or there's already evidence of perforation or ischemia, like free air seen on imaging. In that case, call the surgeon stat. But neostigmine is the drug of choice for a severe ileus. Neostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. It's usually used to reverse neuromuscular blocking agents, but in the case of a sleeping gut, it can get things moving. Neostigmine is a parasympathetic agent, meaning that it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. Now remember, the parasympathetic nervous system is what promotes digestion and peristalsis. For the short half-life that neostigmine's in the system, it will increase peristalsis. Yay! So get that bedpan ready because the median onset of action, action being poop coming, is only four minutes, but it could take up to 30 minutes. Still, that's pretty fast. According to a study by the New England Journal of Medicine, neostigmine achieved, quote, prompt decompression in 91% of patients. But you know what else you want to have at the bedside? Atropine, 
Yeah. The downside of stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system is bradycardia. So the patient must be on a monitor. You give the neostigmine slow IV push, and you need to stay in the room with the patient for a bit to monitor for bradycardia and be there when the poop is produced. If neostigmine does not work, the next option is a decompressive colonoscopy, which I'm sure is every GI doctor's favorite procedure. You know, they're used to going in and taking a look around after the bowels have been prepped and cleared out, but with a decompressive colonoscopy, they are dealing with a very fragile colon that they cannot clearly visualize. There are many risks involved, and this is a very difficult procedure to perform. So before we move on to small bowel obstructions, let me just quickly summarize ileuses. An ileus is a slowing of peristalsis to an almost complete stop. Treatment is enteral naloxone, if that doesn't work, neostigmine, if that doesn't work, then a decompressive and most so fun, colonoscopy. A small bowel obstruction is similar. It has the same end problem of not allowing movement south, but there's actually something blocking the flow. To use the same interstate analogy, so now you have a semi-truck flipped over blocking all four lanes of traffic. You aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Small bowel obstructions are caused from physical obstructions like hernias, cancer masses, scar tissue, or adhesions, etc. But the severity of small bowel obstructions depends on the origin. Some small bowel obstructions don't even require gastric decompression with an NG tube, just a little bowel rest and IV hydration. And others require emergent surgery. To be honest with you, I thought that all small bowel obstructions required an NG tube, maybe because of the environment I've always worked in, they were severe enough that it required an NG tube, but from my research and prepping for this episode, I learned that some patients manage their small bowel obstructions outpatient with oral hydration, maybe clinic visits for IV hydration, but no NG tube required. But if the patient has severe abdominal distension or nausea and vomiting, then decompression with an NG tube is needed. And sometimes the simple act of sucking everything out of the gut and not putting anything else in will correct the obstruction. About 60 to 85% of adhesion-related small bowel obstructions will resolve without surgery. When there is an adhesion kinking things off, then the small bowel proximal to or before the point of the obstruction gets dilated and stretched out and swollen, overly full of liquid poop and gas. Often, bowel rest and decompressing the gut can allow the swelling to shrink back and restore flow heading south. So back to our interstate analogy. Ever driven in Puerto Rico? I absolutely love Puerto Rico. The people, the music, the food, the beaches, but not the traffic. I kid you not, a two lane road will have like four or five lanes of cars traveling on it. It gets so congested. So cars are just driving like halfway on the sidewalk or the median. So the mental imagery is what should be a two-lane road of cars is dilated out to a four-lane road. And when you make a two-lane road a four-lane road, things don't always go so well. So when your small bowel grows to the size of your large bowel, that can have some complications, namely ischemia and perforation. In layman's terms, part of the gut can die or the thing can tear or pop open, spilling bowel contents out of the intestine where it belongs 
into the abdominal cavity, wreaking havoc on the system. Placing the NG tube to decompress allows your gut to shrink back and unkink, so to speak. It's hard to determine which small bowel obstructions will require surgical repair and which ones will repair themselves with gastric decompression. But by combining several diagnostic tools with our clinical assessment findings, you know, some are obvious that they need to go to surgery and others not so much. With regards to clinical presentations, patients with hard abdomens, very tender to palpation or rebound tenderness, you should be concerned. Fever, tachycardia that's not resolved with fluid resuscitation, that should also be concerning. And obviously, shocky blood pressures that are tanking should be a big clue that mesenteric ischemia or perforation has occurred. Labs are helpful too. An elevated lactate is not specific to bowel ischemia or perforation, but it should raise an eyebrow and make us dig deeper. On CAT scan, there are many markers that radiologists can use to predict bowel ischemia or perforation. There are a bunch of signs like the whirl sign and the small bowel feces sign and the venous cutoff sign, but I could not describe those two in detail. What I do understand is the presence of free air on CAT scan. So like, you're not supposed to have air roaming quote unquote free outside of your gut in your peritoneal cavity. Gas and poop belong in the intestine. If on CT or even x-ray, air can be seen outside of the guts, that is concerning. Except when they just had an open or laparoscopic abdominal surgery. Sometimes there is air that lingers outside of the gut after surgery, but it should be reabsorbed within a few days to a week. But this just adds to the diagnostic challenge. Is the free air we see on the patient's CT just post-operative free air? Or do we have a surgical emergency like mesenteric ischemia or intestinal perforation that we need to bring them back to the OR for? I wanted to add one more thing. Those mesenteric ischemia presentations are tricky too. Sometimes their pain is out of proportion to their physical exam, meaning their belly doesn't seem that bad, but they are in agony. I will always remember this one patient that I had in the ER. He was seen in triage, and from what the triage nurse described to me later, he was putting on a show. Really loud, dramatic vomiting, like bleh, and yelling in pain, and his abdomen was not that distended and soft to palpation. He had stable vitals in triage, so he ended up waiting for like three hours out there. When I eventually saw the triage nurse wheeling him back to my room, he looked terrible. Gray, diaphoretic, still actively vomiting. I remember looking up from the nurse's station like 20 feet away and jumping out of my chair because I could tell he was very sick, like gonna die sick. I asked the triage nurse how long he had been like that, and she said he did not look that bad when she initially triaged him. As soon as we got him into the bed, literally as soon as we got him in the bed, his eyes rolled back and he went into cardiac arrest. So we started coding him right there. We were able to get ROSC, and ultimately the CT showed mesenteric artery infarct, and he went off to surgery. But that escalated very quickly. All right, so back to treatment routes. Either they look so bad and their diagnostic imaging and labs are concerning enough that we just take them straight to surgery. Or they look okay and we opt to just place an NG tube and decompress the belly and hydrate with IV fluids. Or we go the middle route and do a gastrograph challenge. 
or to use a more generic term, a water-soluble contrast challenge. Giving gastrographin is both therapeutic and diagnostic. Gastrographin is a hypertonic solution, so it draws fluid into the gut and stimulates peristalsis while also decreasing some of the intestinal cell edema. It also lights up on imaging, convenient. So first we place an NG tube and decompress the gut. Then we give the oral contrast undiluted via the NG tube and clamp off the NG tube for a few hours to let it make its way through the gut. If in 24 hours we can see the contrast light up on imaging in the colon, then it's hopeful that the gastrographin worked and things are starting to move again. But if no contrast can be seen in the colon, that might influence the surgeon's decision to operate. But gastrographin has not been found to be effective for small bowel obstructions from recent surgery, and it is contraindicated for any patient who we suspect ischemia, necrosis, or perforation. So not everyone's a candidate for this. We used to get this one guy in the ER like all the time, and he would come up to triage and say, uh, I have another small bowel obstruction, and I need an NG tube and some gastrographin like Burger King. I'd like an NG tube and gastrographin, please. Um, he had so many adhesions from old surgeries and had so many subsequent small bowel obstructions that he just knew the drill and would try to skip the diagnostic portion and go straight to the treatment. I personally placed an NG tube on him like three different times. Poor guy. All right. I could talk for hours on this, but let's get to the summary. Both ileuses and small bowel obstructions stop forward flow in the gut. An ileus is halted by hypomotility and a small bowel obstruction from a physical obstruction, hence the name. An ileus can be treated at minimum with bowel rest and oral clear liquids and IV hydration. Often NG tubes are required for gastric decompression if things are backed up so badly and there's nausea and vomiting. You can try enteral Narcan or Neostigmine to try to get things moving again, or if all else fails, the GI doctor can manually go in and clear things out with a decompressive colonoscopy. So fun. For a small bowel obstruction, something is physically obstructing the pipes. Most commonly, it's surgical adhesions, but hernias and masses can also be the culprit. Not all small bowel obstructions require surgery. Sometimes just bowel rest and gastric decompression can turn it around, and other times a surgeon needs to help things out. There are some signs that this is a surgical emergency. Patients with peritonitic pain or rebound tenderness, elevated lactate or metabolic acidosis, and sometimes diagnostic imaging shows some signs that there has been an infarct or perforation. And in that case, surgery will be needed. But there's also the option of diagnostic and therapeutic gastrographin challenge. But no matter what, you can expect your small bowel obstruction patient to be somewhere on the spectrum of uncomfortable to an agony or mildly distended to about to pop. <laughs> so back to my patient. He had a small bowel obstruction that needed decompression badly. His abdomen was so distended, it was pressing up on his chest cavity, causing decreased cardiac output, which resulted in tachycardia and hypotension. Yes, he had AFib RVR, but it wasn't that rapid that I needed to emergently treat his rhythm. If you want to learn more about AFib RVR, I have a whole episode on AFib. It's uh, episode number 22. We talk about the problem with AFib, when to be concerned, and the treatment. And cardioversion is one of the treatment options. 
But for this patient, AFib-RVR was not the primary problem. It was the symptom of his severe abdominal distension. I knew that he needed to release the pressure in his belly or he would continue to get worse. I kid you not, I could not change out the suction canisters fast enough. It was just pouring out of him. He was so full of poop. <laughs> Once we got the NG tube in, we had not fixed the small bowel obstruction, just relieved some of the pressure. I'm not sure what happened to him after that, but he would either have gone to surgery or waited to see if the gastric decompression was enough to allow the gut to shrink back and restore flow. I don't know what would have happened if I had gone through with the cardioversion that the doctor wanted to do. He was a chronic AFib patient who was usually anticoagulated, but they had held his anticoagulation for his vascular surgery so he could have some clot formation in the atrium. Worst case scenario, cardioverting him to sinus rhythm could have showered some clot to the brain. Or maybe he had no clot, but it still would have been a terrible experience for him I didn't have enough blood pressure to work with to sedate him before the shock. So he would have felt all 100 to 200 joules or whatever amount of electricity the resident wanted to use. Ouch. But I don't think it would have actually helped his blood pressure. Yes, tachycardia can cause decreased cardiac output. The heart initially compensates for low cardiac output by increasing heart rate, but the faster the heart squeezes, the less time it has to fill each time. So there comes a point where the heart is beating so fast that the blood pressure starts to drop. But that point is not usually 120 beats a minute. So the takeaway is, it's okay to respectfully question your physician colleagues. I wasn't rude. I stepped out to the hallway so that the patient and the family couldn't see what I was saying. And I used keywords like, this isn't safe and I feel uncomfortable. Another great leading line is, I am concerned about, or I just wanted to clarify. Sometimes I just wanna clarify the rationale because it doesn't seem right. So I'll say, can you clarify for me why we're going with this intervention over that intervention? And either I'll learn something new or they will reconsider the plan of care. Either way, it's a win-win but you do not ever have to do something that you feel is not in your patient's best interest. You're allowed to ask for an explanation. This is your license on the line too, and you want what's best for your patient. So let's keep fostering a culture of interdisciplinary collaboration because that is where everyone wins. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com 
or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.